speech-language pathologist, and welcome to Teach Me to Talk, the podcast. I am so excited to get back to the podcast. I've been battling severe allergies for the past three or weeks or so, and it's so good to be back, and I hope I make it through this entire show. Today, we are continuing our autism podcast series, and we're going to be talking about something so important for kids with autism, and that's for those kids who are not developmentally ready to talk yet. It's how do we get started with AAC? Now, when a kid isn't talking, it's often the very first signal to a parent that their child is not developing as expected. And because of that, language or really speech, spoken language, then becomes the paramount goal for those parents. And I totally get that. But the truth is, some kids with autism, research currently says 20, 25, 30%, depending on what sources you you look at will not become functional verbal communicators. So we have, and we don't know which which kids, which kids are going to fall into that category. And while we never, ever, ever give up on speech for any kid that we see, we know based on the research that introducing another system or another way of communicating is the very best chance of getting a child started again with learning how to communicate, not just talk. And for some kids, with autism, and I have seen this over and over in my practice, when we introduce an AAC system or another augmentative alternative system, we give them another way to let you know what they want, and they are not frustrated anymore, and then guess what happens? Language develops through use of another system, and then spoken language develops, and so they do start to talk, but they've already gotten uh, themselves going, and you've gotten them going as their therapist or as their parent with that other system. So that's what we're going to talk about today is how to get language going even when a kid isn't really developmentally ready to talk. And so again, this is through AAC. And let me say again what this stands for if you're not a professional. it's And I always mess it up. It's augmentative, alternative communication. And again, it's just another way of helping a child learn how to communicate. Now, so many parents get scared when therapists say, hey, I'm going to introduce sign language or I'm going to introduce a device or or even something like pictures, because parents think, unrealistically, if I give my kid another way to talk, he's going to become lazy and rely on that, and he's never going to learn how to talk, because that that system will be a crutch for him. Well, let me take that analogy and kind of turn it around. The system will be a crutch for him, but why do we use crutches when our legs or feet need to heal, when we've injured something on our lower body, we do use crutches as just a temporary means or a temporary method to wait until our legs or our feet are strong enough and ready to walk again. And that's the same thing that we do with AAC. We give a child another crutch or a system for learning language and getting language going and then when those things are moving along we take it away and and there are some kids like I started the show with to always again keep this real there are some kids with autism about 20-25% who aren't going to learn how to talk and so again the sooner that we get their way of communicating in place the better it's going to be but for the vast majority of children even those with autism 
getting AAC in place is not going to prevent them from learning how to talk. And so it's never, ever, ever too late for a kid to learn how to talk. But when we say, hey, I'm going to put off introducing this system, you know, I'm not going to teach him how to sign until I know he can't talk, or I'm not going to let him use some kind of device until he's seven or eight or whenever, until we know he's not really talking that, again, that is such an unrealistic fear. And I just, when I have that happen in my practice, I just beg parents to change their mind. And so that's, this is, this show is part of me begging you to change your mind. <laughs> if you're in that very understandable position of not wanting to do anything else that could, could keep a child from learning how to talk. But let's focus on communication. And I'm going to show you the three systems that I've used in my career to really help uh, parents and teach their child to learn how to communicate while we're waiting on those uh, words to develop. And when we let a child, let, let me tell you another reason that AAC is so important. When we let a child experience continued failure in his communication attempts, he finds other not-so-nice ways of communicating the messages that he needs to communicate. So let's say that he's at daycare or preschool or some other kind of social setting. And so instead of being able to tell a child, no, stop, that's my toy or that's my turn, what does he do? He becomes really, really aggressive or frustrated because he doesn't have another way to communicate that message. Or a child in your home, she can't call you when she's in her room and really needs your help. So what does she do? She might destroy her room, again, out of frustration and out of lack of being understood or a way to make you understand her. So we want to, again, get these systems in place as early as possible so that we can help prevent some of that communicative frustration that naturally is going to happen when children do not have a way to make their wants and needs known. The other thing that can happen sometimes when we don't get a system going quickly enough for a child is that they can become super passive, meaning that they just really kind of wait for everything to come to them. And they are have just such, over time, that repeated failure, they just start to make fewer and fewer attempts to communicate. And so that just breaks my heart because those kids have really given up on trying to uh, be understood and given up on trying to make uh, their, again, their communicative messages known. So those are the very, very, very most important reasons that we want to get these systems going. Um, so let's talk about um, the three strategies that uh, we're going to be reviewing in this show, sign language, uh, picture communication system, and then using a speech generating device. And so those are the three things that we're going to be talking about today. And let me just say, too, in no way, shape, or form am I an AAC expert. It is not my niche. But you know what? Toddlers and preschoolers who aren't talking is my niche. And that is what I've done for nearly 30 years. And so I feel like even though AAC isn't really something that I am uh, as well versed in as I am true uh, or spoken language development is something that we have to get in place. And if I can do this and if I can implement these systems, anybody can do it. And I've taught lots and lots of parents how to do this. And so hopefully by learning from my mistakes and the things that I've seen happen over these years, and even as the pendulum has swung back and forth between a direct service provider model to just purely consultative services to like we've had last year in this worldwide pandemic, no services. I've learned a lot about what does and what doesn't work for kids for systems. And I, I have gotten, again, 
again, lots and lots of experience where kids come to me, their parents bring them to me for a second opinion or a fourth opinion or a 17th opinion. And so I've gotten a lot of experience looking at why AA system, AAC systems don't work for families and figuring out, you know, what's happened here? Is this a problem with the child? Is this a problem with the parent? Is this a problem with the system? And a lot of times those issues are what we have to address as therapists up front. And I hope by, you can learn from my mistakes and learn from the things that I've tried and I'll tell you what hasn't worked and what seems to work better for kids with autism. And again, there are some special nuances that we need to consider when a child has read flags for autism or even has a diagnosis of autism already that will let us know which uh, AAC system might be a better fit for him. And a lot of times when when parents come to me, they'll say things like, well, we've already tried that or, or our second therapist did this. And then our third therapist said, don't, enter, don't do it this way, try it this way. And so we just gave up. And so a lot of times I have heard these stories. So let me give you the things that seem to be, um, cause the, the most mismatch with or the, the when AAC is not a good fit for a child or a family. And again, mismatch is really important. It's, uh, a lot of times that's the number one thing that's going on is there's just been a mismatch of this child's skills to the system that the therapist wants to introduce or, or the parent wants to introduce. And a lot of times that is that the expectations are just too high for a child. You have started with pictures, but you've made 50 pictures in an attempt to really implement a robust AA system. And again, nothing is wrong with that. But a lot of times as early intervention professionals, we're starting out way too complicated and too complex for where a child is. And especially when a child is missing so many pre-linguistic skills. And even though we know best practice with AAC is not to worry about any kind of pre-linguistic skill, just to get the system going and then use it, use it, use it. And over time that sticks. Well, you know, sometimes best practice is also is best case scenario. <laughs> and we don't always get that with the kids that we see, especially when if you have been like me in a practice and you see kids after they have seen a lot of other people. And so that you see, gosh, that's not going to work with this kid. They've already tried that. They've already tried to introduce a system and it's been unsuccessful. So this is what you do <laughs> when you have tried that best practice approach and you think there's got to be something missing here. There's something wrong. And so really, really, we're going to look at the skills that a kid uh, or, or where he is currently, the skills that he already possesses, and then match that to an AAC system so that we can be as successful as possible right from the get-go. And before we get to how we do that, let me go ahead and run through a couple of these other reasons that systems have not been successful. The first one was that mismatch of skills to system, and we're going to talk about that. And then the second one is that we've had limited buy-in from either a child's parents, and again, sometimes that's from what we talked about at the beginning of that unrealistic fear that if they introduce an AAC system, that's going to make their child not talk. And so again, you have to already kind of, you have to say, you know, he's, he's already not talking. So that's off the table because we're already at that point. So Quit being scared about that. We're already there. You, you don't need to worry about that anymore. And again, you're going to want to say it less bluntly than I shared that then, but you want to let a parent just kind of, un you want to unravel these things so that you can get to the heart of this. And again, you're going to meet a child where they are with their AAC system, but you're also going to meet parents where they are. We're talking about what, um, 
what their reasons are for not wanting to really implement these kinds of systems. And, you know, I've worked with children where we've introduced AAC in sessions, and frankly, I, I, I'm, I know that they're not practicing very much at home, and that's why those kids don't make very much progress because they don't get enough opportunities to really master those skills. And so those skills, especially it happens a lot with kids with autism because they are they are so smart like this in that they kind of, uh, generalize, they don't generalize, they really compartmentalize, you know, this is something I do only in speech with this person, and then they don't necessarily know how to carry those techniques beyond that clinical setting, and that's why we have to do this, especially as EI providers. If you still have the privilege of going in homes and you are still able to do face-to-face therapy sessions with parents, we have got to help them with this generalization point, even from the beginning, and say, you know, we've got to, Again, I, I think I made that sound a second ago like it was more of a motivation point, like a child with autism is choosing not to use his AAC system at home. And that's not really what I'm saying. I'm saying that we don't always give those opportunities. And so when we don't build that that opportunity for generalization in from the beginning, those kids really do, again, because they're not, the expectation isn't there. They're not using that system. And so we parents may see a very different set of things at home or set of behaviors at home than we see even in a session, even when a parent's there. And a lot of times a parent will say, I just don't understand how he does this so well for you and I can't get him to do this at home. And so you know that there's something going on right there. There's a breakdown. And so you've either got to really, well, you've got to really help parents uh, hone their skills so that they can duplicate the results that you're getting with the child. And so you've got to have them involved from the very, very beginning so that they see what you're doing, how you're cueing, how you're setting this up so that they feel as competent and as confident and as successful as they can be and they can get the same uh, results that you do. And again, at when they're not seeing the same level of success with an AAC device at home, what are they going to do? They're just going to quit because they say, this isn't worth it. This is too much trouble for me. Uh, he's not going to do it for me like he does it for her. And so we really have to address these things uh, up front. And again, talk about what their their issues are. Is it too hard? Do they not understand the point? And that's why a lot of times you really will have to practice so hard in therapy just to get, again, not the kid to do it, but the parent to know how to do it. And that's just the reality. And uh, it's uh, so in grad school, they don't really teach us how to, they teach us how to treat kids and how to, how to work it out with a kid, how to implement a system with a kid. But so much of our professional experience is teaching a parent how to get it from the kid. And so we have to really, really uh, address those issues as lovingly as possible, meet people where they are so that we can find the very best match of system from the get-go. So let me talk about what are the three factors that tell us when we should pursue an additional way of communicating with the child. And these are not my own. This is from uh, Carol uh, Zangari at practicalaac.org. I hope I have not butchered her last name as I tend to do with unfamiliar your uh, names for me, as we all do. But she she was on my podcast years and years ago and made this much, much clearer for me. And she said, Laura, when you see these three things, when therapists see these three things, we know that we should get a system going as quickly as possible. And so this is what I share with parents and say, hey, these are the factors that let us know when we need AAC and when we, and, and then we sort of talk about those. And so if there are 
discrepancies between what a parent thinks about a child and what I think about a child, we can address that as we are discussing these three factors. And again, this is EBP. This is evidence-based practice. So as therapists, you can feel confident in moving forward with these three factors and know this is how you should have these conversations with parents. And it will also help you uncover those hidden uh those hidden attitudes or those hidden concerns that a parent might have about AAC. And this is where we'll find out that they're afraid that an AAC device may keep their child from talking. And so this is how we can begin these conversations and, again, really uncover what's really going on so that we can help uh, a family move forward with this. So when would she, we... When should we introduce AAC? Well, it's when we see a significant gap between what a child understands, so his what? His receptive language, and then what he can express, his expressive language. So when we see that a kid understands a lot, when what does that mean? It means he he has he has things to say. He's he has messages to communicate. He understands what words mean. And so when kids have that and then they again don't have a way to let those wants and needs be known to other people. Again, when we have that gap there, that's what creates the frustration. And so we don't want it to go either of those two ways we talked about, those big pendulum swings where kids are either super aggressive and they're just mad all day long because they can't communicate or they certainly get mad situationally. And then the other end of that, that passive end where they just stop trying altogether. And so when we see that gap, we know that we have to do something. And a lot of times parents get really empowered by that because I'll say, you know what? He is a lot smarter than he can let us know. And I am just I am just dying to see what we can do with him when we get an AAC system going for him. When, and we figure out what it is. We're going to talk about in a second how to figure that out. But when you say that to a parent, when you say, I know how smart your kid is, and I have got to be able to get give him a way to get that out so that everybody can know how smart he is. And so sometimes when we say it that way, a parent is a lot more receptive to uh, implementing or trying or experimenting with AAC. So it's a good way to get that introduced. The second sign is what we've been talking about. It's when a child shows a lot of frustration with not being understood. And a lot of times our little guys with autism, especially the ones who also have cognitive delays or our other little guys with significant developmental differences. They, they might have a, a medical diagnosis uh, so that you already know the reason they're not communicating. But a lot of times those kids, we don't see frustration with not being understood because simply their, their receptive language or their cognitive skills are not way above where those expressive skills are. And so again, we may see some frustration, but a lot of times it's not that they're not understood and so uh, sometimes we you know with the, with those kids you you may work on other things you you know gosh I've got to get this cognition going there's there's not really a gap he's not really frustrated so let's work on some of this other stuff first and so it's just a way to kind of talk about this with parents and again as a therapist to help you make clinical decisions and again the third factor that we uh, use when we consider introducing AAC for a child is, is there a diagnosis present that strongly indicates verbal skills may not develop? And so this is what we talked about before, and autism is one of those diagnoses because 20 to 30 percent of those kids, according to the research, may not ever become functional verbal communicators. They may be verbal, you may hear some things from them, but they are not able to really 
use their words to talk to you. The, the words that they're using or even speaking, again, they're not directed to other people and they're not interactive. And so uh, when we know that there is a diagnosis there, that there is a chance that a kid may not ever talk, the research says, boy, you better get AAC going with those kids and you better not keep waiting on speech with that. You focus on language. You get the language going and then you deal with the speech stuff as it comes. But don't don't wait on those things. So I love those three factors and that certainly has helped me make decisions and, and not just me make decisions. Sharing that information with families will help them make more conscientious, uh, more informed decisions for their own children. <clears throat> okay, so uh, let's talk about one other thing before we get into the nitty-gritty of this. A lot of times when a child has failed with a preview or a parent or a classroom, how, who, whoever you want to put that on, when, it, when AAC has been introduced and a child is no longer using it or they have dropped it, it's usually always because it was too hard. So that's why we're going to take a step back with AAC today and really look at the different systems that we can offer families and talk about at the beginning and make choices at the very beginning, which will limit our opportunities for failure, meaning that when we know something about a child and we think this isn't a good fit, well, we don't introduce that system because we want to set the stage for the most success as possible. So lots of times with AAC, we're, we're looking, and parents might expect this too, they kind of get on the AAC bandwagon and they want just a big system from the very beginning and it's too complicated for the child and so again because of that it never becomes a really functional system. So what we have to do is really look at these skills where a kid is and match that system from the beginning and it's not that we're going to stay with one one particular system forever because most for most kids even kids with autism this is a bridge. This is a way, again, to teach language, to work on communicating while we're waiting on that speech piece to develop. So a lot of times we need to make this simpler for parents. So let's just talk about what these three methods, you remember, we're talking about sign language. So what's that? We can use American Sign Language or we can use Baby Signs, which is a really popular modified signing system. So that's our first thing. Uh, and these, what... And for a parent, if you're not really familiar with sign language, you know, I know that you know it from your uh, experience with people that are deaf or uh, hearing impaired, and it's just a way of using more complex gestures. You know, we all use primitive or, or uh, just our everyday sign language. We do this all day. We use gestures. We point to get uh, redirect someone's attention or we point to indicate something that we want. And so that's really like sign language. Shaking my head, yes, right now. That's a really, uh, and no, that's a really common form of sign language that we use all the time. And so sometimes when parents feel like there's a stigma with that or they're reluctant to do that, my child's not hearing impaired, why would you do that? And fortunately, we don't hear that as much as we did when I started my career back in the 90s but at the same time parents still think this and they may be they may not even tell you that they're thinking it and so we have to really again get in there from the beginning and say hey we all use signs all the time you know communicating non-verbally with gestures is something that you're you start to do uh, when you're one and then you you keep doing it until you can't use your hands or your head or your eyes or whatever you're using to uh, supplement your verbal messages you know we all do 
do it. And so helping a parent say, you know, it, we're just, we're not going to be able to get him to talk yet, but I know that he's going to be able to use more complex gestures because I, I just, he's meeting these prerequisites that we're going to talk about in a minute. And so I think he's developmentally ready for this. And again, you explain your choices and you explain why you're selecting these systems to parents and it makes it easier for them to understand. So the first system was sign language. The second one is picture exchange communication system, and that's trading pictures for what a, what a child wants. So he learns I've got to do something to get something. And so he gives you a picture for what he wants. Now, it's not the same as, like I said before, getting excited and taking, you know, 25 pictures of every possible food he could want and putting them on the fridge or on the cabinet. So, and you think your child's just going to miraculously walk up, touch a picture. You're going to know what it means and your problem is solved. It doesn't really work that way. <laughs> the picture exchange communication system is a very well-respected, well-researched program uh, developed by an ABA therapist and a speech-language pathologist decades ago, has tons of research behind it, and it's a very systematic way to introduce pictures so that a child learns the prerequisite communication skills, the pre-linguistic, pre not prerequisite, you know, I don't send me emails about that, uh, the pre-linguistic skills that he needs like joint attention, like social interaction interaction and social, uh, social engagement, those pre-linguistic skills, PECs can help with that, but it's just a general picture system that you really introduce kind of willy-nilly, you know, let's just throw it all out there and see what sticks. That doesn't work, particularly with kids with autism. So uh, we'll talk about how to introduce PECs where it is, again, we give the child the most a uh, successful way to begin, the most opportunities. We, we stack that deck for him when we introduce PECS because it's so well-researched. And so if, if we don't mess it up with how we introduce it, it can certainly go uh, be, just be efficient and functional from the beginning. So that's the second kind of system that we've been introduced. And the third one is a speech-generating device. And this just, I'm going to show you some of the ones that I use, but this is, these are just low-tech devices uh, basically, you just record a message and then you push the device. And I like these because they're easy to do motorically and a child can hear, <clears throat> excuse me, a model of the spoken version of what he is requesting. So those are the three systems we're going to talk about. Sign language, picture exchange, communication system, and speech generating devices. And so all of these systems have kind of pros and cons. And so you have to really look at that for individual children. And again, what we're trying to do is match a child's skills to the system from the get-go so that we can help him become a successful communicator right from the beginning. So let's talk about the special challenges that we see when we introduce AAC systems, even these low-tech systems to children and their families. And let's talk about the strategies and tweaks that we'll use to uh, select the system and then again to introduce those systems as we get started with AAC for kids with autism. So how do we select AAC? And again, this information is on your handout. If you have purchased CE credit for this course, and if you have just stumbled on this show on YouTube and you have no idea what I'm talking about, my website is teachmetotalk.com, and you can purchase, if you are a therapist, continuing education credits for these one-hour courses, and you get a certificate and all that good stuff so that you can count it toward your credentialing, your licensure, whatever you need, but the best part of the show for me as a therapist 
is developing this but uh, and then receiving this kind of information so we've got a two-page handout with all this and, and the most uh, the way that we do that is the handouts are available when you purchase credit. So if you're a family member and you think, gosh, i got to get my hands on this, this handout, uh, go ahead and buy that credit so that you can uh, get, the, get this written information so that you can remember this and apply this with the child that you love and that you're working with and trying to, trying to help and get this going for. So you can find this information out. There's a link at the bottom of the post there uh, to my website, and it's uh, podcast number 410 so that you can uh, get your hands on this handout. And so we're looking at the factors for choosing a system. So number one, is a child unable to use speech to meet her needs? And this is where we always start when we're taught, when we're designing or thinking about introducing an AAC, an AAC system. We say, is this kid going to talk? Is she able to talk right now to let other people know what uh, she needs. So if she's not able to talk, that's our first ding, 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 ding. Um, we need to look at AAC here. So what do we do when we're looking at that? We're going to walk through the rest of these so that we can figure out which system is going to be uh, the best match for a child. So this next thing I look at is uh, a child's motor skills. So are a child's motor skills limited? And why is that important? Well, when a kid has limited motor skills, and again, it could be because there's low muscle tone with a diagnosis like, well, a third of kids with autism have uh, muscle tone differences, and usually it's low muscle tone. And so, uh, again, that doesn't mean that they're not strong or has re really, it, it's it's their, their muscle their, their, their resting muscle tone is what we're looking at with that. And I certainly don't want to get into those differences with high muscle tone or lower muscle tone. But certainly with autism, we see about a third of kids have uh, low muscle tone. And so when we know that that's a factor, and again, the muscle tone uh, be, could affect their ability. That's one of the reasons they're probably not talking. Uh, so it affects their speech system, but it also might affect their ability to use sign language. And so we might think, oh, signs aren't going to be the greatest thing for them because he has such limited use of his little hands and his arms. So what do we do with them? Pictures might be easier. Or certainly for some kids, a speech generating device. So certainly something that they can push, a button they can push, or uh, a more complicated device like a GoTalk that has maybe four slots or nine slots. Do they have enough motor control to use to isolate their index finger and point or use a couple of fingers and really purposefully direct that little hand to the specific place that we want to point to, want them to point to to activate the button. And so a lot of times that's why the system isn't working. There's just a real mismatch with a kid's motoric system with the system that uh, the therapist is trying to introduce. So think about that too. If there are muscle tone issues, if there are muscle uh, if there are motor planning issues, so the kid has markers for apraxia, and again, you might say, well, I don't know if he has apraxia yet because he's not talking, and I get that, but just know that over, according to some, uh, one study, some studies, over 60% of children with autism have some motor planning issues, and so even though they can run circles around you and their gross motor skills are fine, when you start really looking at their fine motor coordination, you start to see, gosh, he has difficulty with toys with this. He can't really figure out how to use his little hands to use the toys. And there's nothing wrong with his muscles. I mean, look look at him. There's There are no other indications of low muscle tone. You know, we don't see an open mouth posture. We don't see a, a, a tongue with lower muscle tone, you know, a, a, an open mouth with a 
you know, a droop your tongue. We don't see any of those low, low muscle tone things, but yet there's some, there's some muscle coordination issues here. That's motor planning. And so when we know that there are going to be issues like that, we automatically think, well, signs may not work for this kid because he may not be able to uh, use his little hands purposefully and as intentionally as we need him to do right there. And I think I shared this example a few weeks ago on a show, on the show, talking about this with a little boy I treated years and years and years ago. And he, uh, when I saw him try to sign please, and he was trying to rub his back and I thought, what is that? He, what is he doing? He was, he, his motor planning system was off, disrupted, what, whatever you want to call it. But he was trying, he, he didn't understand that he's going to imitate here. He's going to rub his chest. He's trying to rub his back. And so again, sometimes those motor planning pieces, you think signs are not a good choice for this kid because he's just not there yet. So you want to really look at that. So when we see that kids have a lot of motor issues, I think uh, really simple SGDs or the way speech generating devices are the way to go at the beginning because all that we want them to do is push a button. And they would be doing that. You're going to see that they can do that with cause and effect toys or other things. So if you see, aha, I have that movement, that would be a good choice for that child. Another thing that we want to ask is does a child have strong visual learning preferences? Well, lots of kids with autism have that. That's why they're kind of addicted or fixated on shapes, colors, letters, and numbers. Those are things they see see versus things they hear and their visual systems are are more uh, in tuned or developed or or stronger than their auditory systems which are weaker and so when we see kids have those strong visual learning preferences a lot and, and they love screens they love looking at pictures anyway they like to sit and really look at their little books so you know, oh my goodness, he's really visual. So with those kinds of kids, I go for pictures from the very beginning because I think this is what they really like. This is what they're attracted to. This is where his strengths are. And so that certainly is a consideration uh, for you. If you know that a child, let's go back to what we're talking about, the cause and effect toys or the, the simplicity of the one push system. If you know that a kid tends to stem on a toy like that and stem is just a, a uh, shorter way of saying self-stimulatory behavior. You know, there are three ways that kids can stem. You know, they can stem with their little bodies by uh, doing hand flapping or even something with their fingers or picking their skin. They're doing some kind of little movement with their body. They may rock back and forth. They can stem with their speech so they can be really repetitive with what they repeat over and over and over. You might hear to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond, to infinity and beyond. You might hear a little echolalic phrase like that over and over and over and over and over. That's the stem and they also can stem with objects, the kinds of things they do with objects, those repetitive movements. So you might see a kid who's, you know, down on the floor on his little tummy and he's just rolling that Thomas the Train back and forth watching those little wheels spin or a kid who's, who spins everything himself or a kid who really gets stuck pushing buttons. So when you have a kid who tends to stem with objects or with toys with buttons, what do you know about a speech generating device? He's going to stem with that. And so you are either... One, going to not do it because you think, let's see if I can get pictures or something else going first that he would be less likely to stem with, so this system's going to be more functional for him. 
or you are going to be so clever in how you introduce the system and how you get SGDs going so that he can, again, it's functional. It's not something he kind of gets stuck. He doesn't perseverate there with that button pushing. So there are some things that you can do for that too if you think, mm, he stems, but I still think this is our best option. I'm going to show you some things that I do with that. But these are the factors we use, and this is how we match a system to a child's skills. And again, if you're a therapist and you're thinking, no, Laura, this is best practice is we, we just introduce it and see what happens, and we just model it, and then the kid eventually catches on. Okay, if that works, that is fantastic. I'm for that too, but I'm talking about when we've done that and we are still stuck. These are the things that we should be looking for to help this become easier for a child. So let's get to the point where we think, okay, let's pick a system for a child. Now I'm going to show you what to do after you've already selected uh, what system you are going to use. So let's start with signing. Oh, let me say one more thing. Sometimes we, we said at the beginning, our first factor for introducing AAC would be, is she going to be able to use speech? Yes or no? And so sometimes we say we're only going to be able to introduce, we would only introduce AAC with a kid who's not ready to talk and the likelihood is there's a possibility that he won't ever talk because of his diagnosis. The other thing with that might lead you to believe if, if a kid is already talking, you don't need an AAC device. Well, the very first word in AAC is augmentative, meaning support. So there are some kids, and especially kids with autism, who are verbal, but who are not using their words to communicate. And so while we want to work on that, we want to make that speech functional, we also have to consider the pragmatics. The child doesn't know how to use her words. She might be labeling banana and water and milk and uh, cookie. She might label those things, but she might not know how to use those words uh, functionally to communicate. So she doesn't know how to request when she says those words. For those kids, particularly verbal kids with autism who are, in, who are echolalic and who, again, use can only talk using one pragmatic function, sometimes introducing an AAC system is so successful because, again, it teaches them that intent piece that I've got to use my language. So they use their picture card. They use their sign. They use their uh, speech generating device. And because that you've given them another way, something else to do, it becomes easier for them to use their word or their speech. And then that talking becomes more like language because, uh, again, they're using it not just as a self-stimulatory uh, thing that they do, not just that they're talking because it feels good to them for whatever reason, they're using those words to really communicate. And sometimes those these systems that we get going, particularly the picture exchange system, well, not particularly because signs, it works with signs. Same thing with SGDs. That This other system is their bridge to help them get over that pragmatic difference that they've had. So I hope that helps you understand that. So sometimes we will have we will introduce systems to kids who are verbal. And boy, that'll, that kind of with a parent, I've had some reluctance there where a parent says, why are you doing that? She's already talking. And then you have to really walk a parent through that process and say, well, she is talking. She's labeling. But... Can she ask you for things? Can she let you know what she wants? Can she answer you when you say, why are you crying? 
what do you want? Show mommy what you want. Can she get up and point? Can she somehow let you know? And of course, they're going to say no. You say, that's what this system is about. That's why, why we need to use this. So I didn't want to um, leave you that with the impression that we would never, ever use an AAC system with a kid who is already verbal. There are certainly circumstances where that is so justified. And again, it is such a good bridge for you as a therapist. Sometimes it's a harder sell to parents, but you have to talk about why you're doing what you're doing and you have to do everything that so that you can get so much success at the beginning that you are not flailing around or faltering here and that you have so closely matched a child's, a child's skills to the system that you're using so that you can get some success right away. Then a parent will believe it. Then a parent will be so uh, ready to carry through the things that you have taught with them about. And so uh, be sure that you're looking at that. All right, so we are going to hurriedly kind of, I'm not hurriedly, our focus here isn't for me to tell you everything you need to know about signs or about pictures or about using speech generating devices, especially with kids with autism. It's This is enough to get you started. Now, you can certainly find all this information in my newest treatment manual about treating autism. It's called the Autism Workbook Developing Special, uh, I'm sorry, Developing Speech Therapy Treatment Plans for Toddlers and Preschoolers with Red Flags for ASD. You can get this exclusively at my website at Teach Me to Talk. But this is to get you started. This is for something for you to leave this show with today to uh, be able to implement with kids. So we're not going to talk uh, about every sing single little thing there is to know about introducing signs, pecs, or uh, SGDs. I just want you to know how to get started. So with sign language, we've already said signs are just using a more complex system of gestures to communicate. So a problem for that with autism, that's a pro because then a kid doesn't have to talk, they can use their hands. And remember what we already said about that for some kids with autism. There may be muscle tone differences or muscle planning differences that uh, make signs not the best choice for a kid. And so a lot of times as therapists, we just introduce what we know and again, kind of hope it'll stick without really thinking about, is this a good idea for this particular child? So how do we know when signs will work and when they won't? So there are five considerations that I use for this. And again, you can think about them as prerequisites or you can think about it as I'm just going to match the system to the, the skill level of the child. And so what are the things that a kid has to be able to do before signs are successful? Well, first of all, a kid has to be socially connected to other people. And why is that? Because if he is not socially connected to you, he's not going to watch you. And if he doesn't watch you and look at you, he's not going to see you doing the sign. So you can sign this, the sign for cracker, all day long. And if he is running around the room and climbing and jumping and doing all the things that a busy little friend might do, and he's not watching you sign that, what's the point? You've got to work on that social engagement piece so that he can get to imitation, for, get to imitation. but he's got to have that social connection piece first. And so when you have kids with super terrible uh, social interaction skills, or it might be just that their sensory systems just drive and drive and drive and drive them so that they run, 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 go, go, go your whole time with them, signing's probably not going to be your best bet because you haven't gotten them uh, 
you haven't gotten that social connection piece firmly established enough for signs to be successful, he's going to need a lot more attention than he's able to devote to you. So signs may not be, signs are not a good choice for a kid who, again, is not socially connected. The second factor is the kid should be able to follow very simple commands. Why is that? Because you're going to say things like, do this. You know, this is the sign for more. So, we're, you know, you're, you're basically like our ABA friends teaching imitation. And so, again, if they are not able to uh, follow your direction or imitate your motor movements, which is actually the, the third or fourth piece. Let's just go ahead and talk about that, that imitation piece. If they're not watching you long enough to imitate, or even if they're watching you, but then they can't make their little bodies do it, that's not going to be, uh, sign language is not going to be a good match for them. And so you know that if a kid is not clapping or raising his hands or trying to do uh, you know, when after you raise your hands in a little game, you know, these are all in the context of games or copying you or trying to do the finger motions to a song, the hand motions, you know, gosh, signs just probably aren't going to work for him because I'm not seeing these other things, which would indicate that he's able to use these gestures. So then, you know, I'm going to have to pick a different system with that. The other factor here is communicative intent. And so a kid has to have a lot of communicative intent to get a sign going. He has to know that he wants what you have, and then he's got to be able to pair his little motor movement to match that. But if he doesn't have that communicative uh, intent piece with lots, you don't see pulling and reaching and grunting and and purposefully doing something to get your attention, signs aren't going to be the best choice for him because, again, that's another step, another point just beyond what he can uh, do at the point where he is developmentally. And so when we look at those factors, uh, even something like symbolism, signs are symbolic. You know, pictures are symbolic. When you see this picture of a sippy cup, that's the symbol. And when I say the word sippy cup, that's the symbol. It represents the cup right there. Well, the sign for cup is the same thing. And so when we don't think that a kid is symbolic yet with signs, signs may also kind of they're a level beyond a pictorial representation. And so when we see that a, a kid isn't making those connections and we'll know it because he's not doing any kind of gestures that are that are symbolic. So he's not waving bye bye. <clears throat> Excuse me, he's not shaking his head yes or no. He's not pointing to what he wants. You know, gosh, he's not doing those gestures on his own, so he's not symbolic yet. He's gonna need something more concrete. And so for those kids, you know, gosh, signs are not going to be an option. So the, I'm not saying that we don't introduce, we never use signs with kids with autism because goodness knows I have. And I certainly, it's so funny. I think earlier in my career when I didn't know all these things and I just sort of, I did take that approach where I just tried to do anything that I thought would work and just would see what would stick. And then when I learned, oh, let me start really tailoring what I introduce to what a kid can and can't already do when I already meet him where he is. It's not that I need to teach him all these things to get him ready for signs, and we can certainly do that. But for so many of our little guys with autism, we're looking at this sign language prerequisite list, and we're saying that's not a good match because of these things, and we're just not going to do it. We'll just introduce a new system. And I wish I'd known that earlier in my career because I probably wasted some time with some kids who weren't going to sign. And how did I know that? Because I worked on signs for two or three months, 
and got nothing, <laughs> I could have probably made some better decisions at the beginning and gotten going uh, a lot easier than I was doing. So when you know better, you do better. Uh, so take, take my advice with that. And this isn't just my experience. This is also evidence-based practice. There's a 2013 article in uh, Frontiers in uh, Neuroscience. I hope I'm saying that that uh, publication's name correctly, but it says that uh, that study says that kids with autism, because of that, because of that, uh, their uh, differences in social connection, because of their differences with uh, motor imitation, because of their difficulty with using nonverbal communication like gestures, those are all markers for autism. Because of that, signing may not be the best system, but for some kids. As a therapist, you may have already done this too. We've introduced signs for with a kid with autism and why did it work? Because they met their prerequisites. So when you know those are or those those but they have their prelinguistic skills that are necessary to, to use signing or to use that method. And so that's why it worked. It wasn't really that autism, it, it wasn't that, oh, you can teach kids with autism to sign. You sure can because when, when they are ready, they totally get that system. But use those factors, use those uh, those uh, considerations there to help you make that decision. So what do we do when we introduce signs? And this is going to be the same that we do not only with signs but also with pictures and also with speech generating devices. We're going to use the same method. First we're going to pick powerful motivators and you can usually, that means what will the kid work for? What does he want so much that he will learn how to use a sign, trade a picture, or push a button with a picture on it to be uh, representative? So what will, uh, what, what will he work for? And there are three categories that we use with toddlers and I guess kind of with all kids. Junk food. So if you have a kid who likes food, not just any food, but the very best junk food that you can find, so something that he already loves or you know he's going to love. A cool toy and not just any toy that's... He could just, you know, walk by and not really give a rip about. You're going to get something that he loves. And then lastly, and this is the most fun, or a movement game. So some little routine that you can do with him. Those are, that he needs you to be able to do that routine. So like throwing him up in the air or swinging him in a blanket or pushing him on a swing or even something like rocket ship where you play with that, uh, play with him on your legs where you are lifting him in the air off the floor. Those kinds of little movement games, I've got tons of those in Teach Me to Play With You if you need some ideas for that. But those are the three things we use. Junk food, cool toys, or a fun, fast movement game. So that's what we're going to do. And then what are we going to, how do we introduce this? So, and again, I'm going to give you the kind of the longer version of this when we're talking about signs, but we're going to use the same method with picture exchange system and with uh, our speech generating devices. We'll present whatever our motivator is. We're going to use our cues for tell him, show him, help him. So we're going to get him going with the system, and then we're going to make this fast so that he can really practice his signs. So you pick what your motivator is. You give it to him. Let him have one. Or if he's a little bit further along than that, he's going to know what it is and want it from the get-go. You're going to show him what you want him to do. So in this case, we're talking about signs. So you're going to model the sign for him. As soon as he does it, you know, you're going to tell him, do this, show me more, show me more. And so you're telling him what to do. You're showing him what to do. And then if he doesn't do the sign with you, you should provide some physical assistance. So that's the helping part. So that's where you reach down, take his little hands, and you help him do that sign. And so... 
And then as soon as he does it, you reward him. You give him uh, whatever it is that he signed for, whatever your motivator was, whether it be your food, your uh, cool toy, or your fun movement game. You give it to him as soon as he does it. And that's why you want to pick something that has a short turn or a just a quick turnaround time. So if you're playing a game with him, you don't want a 10-minute kind of game, and then he has to request it again. You want something just like uh, if you're doing a movement game with him, let's say that he loves for you to tickle him, and you're going to use tickles. That's what you're going to use with him. Or you, he loves for you to throw him on the bed, and so you're going to teach him a sign for, a general sign for more. And again, a lot of times therapists don't like these generalized signs for more, for please, or something that's representative of lots of things because it's, they don't think it's specific enough for kids with autism and then they kids just kind of get stuck there and they use it for everything but that's kind of why I like those signs and I've, I've written a post about this at Teach Me To Talk it's called uh, 10 Reasons I Still I still Teach The Sign More if you're curious about that but I do introduce these signs at the beginning particularly to get this system going and make this more again just as fast and as fun as, as and as meaningful as I can for a kid and so we're going to tell him show him help him to get that going and reward him and have lots of opportunities for him to practice that sign and so if it's something like throwing him on the bed you're going to model that sign for him for more he does it or you help him do it you throw him on the bed you laugh you all have a good time you celebrate that then you get him right back off that bed and you say do you want more show me more show me more he does it again you throw him on the bed again you laugh you celebrate you get him off help him get down you say do you want more and you that's how you do it you keep it going you might do that with the cup with a sippy cup, you might do that with uh, a cool toy, so something really fast like bubbles or a spinny light toy. He can just have it for a second, and then you get it right back. If we have time left in this show, I'm going to tell you how to do it with a screen, which I hate, but for some kids, you've got to get this going with screen time uh, So because that's their most motivating thing ever. And again, know that those are the kinds of kids that you your goal is to find something else first but for some kids that's where you have to start but just know you're going to keep these turns as quick as you can because you want to build in that repetitions because it leads to mastery and so whatever you're doing whether it be with a sign with a picture or with a device know that you've got to again select things that a kid really loves and select things that are going to be really really fast so that you can get the most practice that you need so what do you do when signing goes wrong what are some things that go wrong with signs kids don't ever get past the first sign or two that's really the adults problem we haven't taught enough we haven't moved him along enough and always a lot of times uh, with a sign you just, a kid just won't do it that's usually because your motivators aren't strong enough you've got to pick things that that kid really likes if he could kind of you know he's kind of eh about the food that you're using don't use it anymore pick something else that he really really loves a lot of times with parents they'll say he loves goldfish and I'll say you know what we're gonna we're gonna make this even even more special for him please don't give him goldfish the day of therapy please don't even give him goldfish the day before therapy I mean I want him to want the goldfish <laughs> before we try to introduce this and some of our state early intervention systems have so tied our hands and therapists feel like oh I can't ever ask a parent to do something like that for their child or parents have to come up with their own ideas all the time or it's not functional it's not whatever you want to say I just don't buy all that because that's that's just not true 
you talk to a parent and you walk them through this and you introduce your ideas, that's they don't know what to do or they would have already done it. That's why they're in speech therapy. So don't feel badly and don't listen to the people that say you can't teach a parent something or bring up your own strategy. That's why they're here and they're with you. So uh, go ahead and talk to parents about that. And if you feel like you need to lead them through it or let them be, let it be their ideas. So be it. Knock yourself out. But I'm just still going to go with what I know works, which is me saying to a parent, based on my experience, can I show you something that I think would really, really work with your child? And I just don't know a parent who's going to say no to that. And so, again, you you help them. You talk with them about, hey, we can make these motivators stronger. You know, and you're not asking a parent, please don't feed your child anything before they get to therapy. You're just saying, hey, that motivator that we're going to use today, let's make sure it works. So don't give it to them today. And if you're really brave, don't give it to them the day before I get there either. So that kind of takes care of that. So that's a problem we have with signs, that the motivator isn't strong enough. And sometimes it's just that the kids haven't had enough repetition and enough practice. And so you've got to really, really talk to parents about that. Now, uh, one other problem with uh, signs before we move on is that a kid may scroll. So he was scrolling. Is He's going to do every sign he knows, you know, to get what he wants because he hasn't really linked meaning with the sign yet. And so you've got to back up and think about receptive language. He's got to know that this sign is candy. He's got to know that this is milk because otherwise he's just it would be the same as you showing him flashcards and him saying the wrong word so if you held up and I hate flashcards but we're just using this as an example if I held up the number eight and he signed he said two that's an incorrect response right and so we know he doesn't really know eight yet. He just He's just saying what he knows, hoping he gets it right. And so that's the same thing with signs. And so you've really got to back up and teach and reteach. Maybe you've introduced too many signs. Maybe you haven't been specific enough. And so sometimes in our enthusiasm, we don't really look at what we're doing as the adult or as the therapist. So go back and look at that and figure out why is it signing working? Um, but know from the get-go, unless a kid has, has those... Uh, prerequisite skills that we talked about, socially connected, following simple commands, has communicative intent, can imitate basic motor movements, and is becoming symbolic, don't introduce signs. Move on to one of these other systems. All right, so let's talk about the next system. It's PECS, the Picture Exchange Communication System. And again, this is uh, developed by Frost and Bundy. My number one recommendation for using PECS is get the manual buy the manual, read the manual. Now, if you are a therapist and you learned PECS in grad school, but you've never looked at that manual, mm, you're going to do it wrong. <laughs> Your memory is not that good. Unless you've had the most fantastic clinical experiences ever in grad school and you use the system correctly, you don't know PECS until you really take a course or read the manual. So order the manual and read it. Another thing that I do with PECS is that I will uh, loan my copy of the manual or print the copy for the parent or the parent will somehow obtain the copy of the manual themselves. I've had, I've worked with so many wonderful families who are such self-starters, uh, particularly earlier in my career, and they would try to buy it on eBay or just they would find a copy and I love it when that happens have them read it that's their very first thing especially the first three levels and PEX has six distinct phases and when we follow those phases and really do this 
uh, as it was intended. It just works so well. And again, when we have matched the system that we know, okay, the pets is a good option for this little guy because he's pretty, uh, his visual skills are pretty good. I mean, he he, can, he likes pictures. He's looking at pictures, especially when we know that a kid has that. And when we know that a kid, okay, his motor skills are pretty good. That's not saying that you can't introduce it to a kid whose motor skills aren't great, but certainly Frost and Bundy would disagree because in the first phase of PECS, when you are trading pictures, that's just the simple assisted trade, they don't even have to be able to do it themselves. And so don't misunderstand me and think that I'm misusing their information. I'm just saying that when I think, well, he can already hold a picture and he can already do this, that, that's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying is I'm matching what he can already do. But Frost and Bundy don't say that. They say that if you, you can teach a kid how to trade a picture, and I believe that too. But it's a, good, it's a good thing when they can already do it, right? And so that's how we would know that PECS would be a good uh, match for them. Other thing that we're going to do is we're going to select powerful motivators, just like we talked about with signs. We talked about we're going to use something, either junk food, either a cool toy or a fun movement game. A lot of times we try to use toys, and they're harder. And naturally, you would think that you would use a toy because kids play with toys, and that's certainly a way that we... Pardon me for uh, getting that off my lip. That's certainly a way that we know that we uh, work with kids. That's certainly a strategy or a tool that we use, toys. But sometimes toys aren't as great a match for any of these uh, AAC systems as as and don't work as well as a food item or a fast movement game would. So kind of think about that. But if you think a kid doesn't like toys, I don't know what I'm I'm going to do with that. That's your number one indicator that you probably shouldn't be using toys with him. But the second way to do it would be a PEX talks about this, how to find your motivators is that you set out um, several and that you see what a kid likes. And when he likes that, you know that you can move that away into your keep pile. So, oh, that's something that he likes. And then you set out some more toys and see what he gravitates to. And whatever he gravitates to and plays with, you let him play with it for a second. And then you put it away because you know that's a motivator too. And that, then that's how you determine what are these three or four things uh, toy-wise that he would like to do. Um, and again, you can do that, especially if you don't have the opportunity to talk to parents or teachers. But I like talking to parents and teachers, and they tell me, oh, these are the three foods that he really, really likes that he'll do well with, three snack foods. And so use that information. But when you don't have it, you certainly can do uh, what Peck suggests and kind of do that rule out where you determine what a kid likes. All right, so... I think I've jumped ahead of myself with this pack stuff. Let me be sure that I'm telling you everything that you need to do. Let's talk about with pictures with pecs. Um, gosh, I love how advanced our whole world is now because I spent a whole lot of hours all these decades before trying to cut pictures off labels of food and trying to take then I when we got fancy phones I tried to take pictures of everything and then print them now we can just go to google images and find nearly any picture of the real object that a child will be using for something print it I always laminate my pictures for pecs because it makes them sturdier and it keeps them a lot cleaner and you can wash them off and use them and use them and use them uh, so that's kind of where you start with that system uh, uh, to print and laminate your pictures. Another really big uh, deal breaker for PECS is you've got to have two adults to be able to implement it. One adult is the holder of good things. So whatever your motivator is, whether if it's a food, the first adult is holds the food and is the giver of the food. 
or if it's a toy, they hold the toy and they're the giver. Or if it's the fun movement game, they're the, they're the other adult that's going to participate in the movement game with the child. And then the other adult, the second adult, is the assister. They're the helper. And so they're the person who takes the child's hand, picks up the picture, and places it in the other adult's hand. And so, again, if you, when you read the PEX manual, it is so outlined with how you should do it and how you should cue it. PEX is basically a nonverbal system. So you're not saying to the child, pick up the picture. Give me the picture. You can't have the cup to you. Give me the picture. I need the picture. That's what all of us do. Even, even parents, I mean, we do it. We just talk. We over-cue. We so heavily rely on that verbal cue. And what do we know about most kids with autism, lots of kids with autism? Their auditory systems, well, not, let's just say, a lot of kids with autism, their auditory systems are not as well developed as their visual systems. So with this, PEX is a visual system. We want him to be paying attention to this is the picture of the cup and I'm getting the cup, not hearing your words. And so remind yourself all the time that I'm going to use physical cues to help this child, not verbal cues. And so the helper person, the uh the giver, like let's say this is the sippy cup, and I'm the giver right now, and I'm saying cup, ooh, drink, ooh, cup. And then the helper person who is behind the kid takes the picture and, again, places it in the hand of the giver. And then as soon as you get the picture, give it to the child. Let the child take a drink, take a bite, play with the toy. Or if you are, uh, if you've worked out whatever you're using as the symbol for your fast moving game, and those are a little harder to get with pictures, but you can do it. It can be done. You could, if you're doing jumping on the bed or throwing him on the bed, you could take a picture of the bed or him take a picture when he's you know, already on the bed, kind of just as he's landed, so he can see, oh, that's me, and this is, and, and again, sometimes kids don't even really get what the picture is, they just, over time, they're going to learn how to trade it, and in the third phase of PECS, we're going to teach picture discrimination, and so certainly that's something that we have to pay attention to, uh, with, too, is how how well can we represent um, the picture? And then even if we don't, you know, how well is this child going to learn what he's doing with that? So we have to use, this is how we teach PECs. We have to remember to not only use PECs for preferred tasks, but in the third phase of PECs, we teach non-preferred tasks too. And this is so important when we are introducing picture systems as well as the next system with speech generating devices where we teach them to really look at the picture and understand what the picture is. But that, that doesn't come at the beginning. At the beginning, we're just teaching them to trade or with the speech generating device just to push the button and then immediately get what they want. Then the next phase in PECS is distance trading. So this is where kids become a lot more intentional. So then this is where they're going to really learn how to, even if you help them pick up the picture at the beginning, you're still providing assistance to hold the picture. They have to walk across the room and give the person who's the giver of the picture so they can get whatever it is. Same thing with the speech generating device. If you've used this, and again, I'm getting a little bit ahead of myself, but I want to say it so I don't forget it. If you use uh, the speech generating device with the kid in this phase of teaching, you're going to move the 
move the device a little further back so they have to work for it. Now, that's not meaning that you're going to get them to go across the table for a kid who has some motor issues, but you are going to move it so that they have to really look for it and that it's not just right in front of them. And some therapists disagree with this and say we should always make this as easy and as accessible as possible, but if you want communication to be intentional and purposeful, you do have to introduce this step. And I love that Frost and Bundy came up with this before me <laughs> and that it's already introduced and that I could quit wasting time with them teaching me their shortcut with kids have to do something to get something. So they do have to learn how to discriminate pictures and that they do need to learn that sometimes we use a preferred picture and sometimes we use a non-preferred picture. And so when we get to the point when they are choosing pictures, even with pegs, I'm just going to leave them on the SGDs even though we're thinking about, we're talking about pegs. I've got a picture of bubbles here and a picture of hairbrush. Now if a I, I used this with the last little girl that I introduced systems, uh, this speech generating device system with, because she didn't like brushing her hair. And it's something they have to do and something they're going to do anyway, but she does not like hairbrushes. So let me tell you, she learned to look at the pictures really quick. Not that we were torturing her with brushing her hair. It was her grandmother with me in therapy, and when she would pick the hairbrush, push the hairbrush button and grandma says, oh, you want your hair brushed? Really? And she starts brushing your hair and the little girl doesn't like it. She really learned, I better not pick that brush, right? And that's the only way to do it. It's by trial. It's by trial and error. It's by experience. And so using in the third phase of PECS that non-preferred system, uh, non-preferred picture and teaching that within your system of communicating is awesome because it makes the child really, really choose what they're doing. All right, so with PECS, uh, I think I, I said this too, uh, with signing, we have to practice and give a kid enough time for mastery. And so the evidence-based practice recommendation is that it takes 30 trades a day for a kid to learn PECS. And so I do the same thing with speech generating devices so that if a parent can't commit to 30 trials of this a day, we just don't even introduce it because they're just, we're, we're not going to, it's not going to be successful. There's not enough opportunity for mastery. And so talk with the parent about that at the beginning, you know, if there's with pets, if they don't have another adult or, you know, I've trained siblings, you know, seven and eight year olds who are uh, really into therapy. I've taught them to help their moms and be the other person there. And so that they can't implement pets. But if there's a single mom or they're just two adults or never home, mom and dad work split shifts and there's just no time to practice together, that text might not be something that you want to do for that child because it really does take two adults. And the other thing, like we said before, if they're not 30 opportunities a day for practice, um, that's something that we're not going to use. Let's finish up with speech generating devices. Um, these are the little devices we talked about. These are so cheap. Uh, I think both of these, I, I'll post a link in the bottom, an Amazon link, so you can get them if you don't want to do a lot of research on your own. But just any any little button where there's uh, you can record the message and then play it. And you're going to put your pictures on here so that the button is representative of what you want the, the child to ask for or what they're requesting. Uh, the research varies in what message you want to say. You can use a single word, which is what we're going to do for early language learners, or you can do the whole thing, but you record your message, you know, bubbles or um, bubbles. I want bubbles, bubbles. You record it there, and I love it. I let parents or want parents to record it in their own voices so that they have some ownership with this kind of system. You're going to teach a child again, just like you did with the PECs, with the trading he 
he activates the button and you give him immediately what he wants and then you tr you train that you practice that so that he's learning that you generalize it use it with several different pictures you do the distance phase where once he's really gotten it down pat you start to move the button a little further away to see oh can he cross midline and get it? Is he looking for the button? Is he trying? Is he making an effort? And then in that third phase, just like we did with PEX, is when we're going to introduce the non-preferred picture discrimination. And again, if you are just starting with the AAC, this might have been way too much information for you to... Uh, be able to fully implement this kind of system on your own today, but go back and listen to this show. Let me give you some other show numbers with some other information. Uh, sign language, tell you what, I'm just going to put that in the post. So uh, I'm going to give you some other uh, resources from Teach Me to Talk uh, here on our YouTube channel about sign language, other things about using some visual systems with kids so that you can get some more information. I crammed a lot in this show, but again, for uh, further information, check it out, uh, the Autism Workbook, and so you can get these strategies that you can implement uh, with your own caseload or with uh, your own particular child if you are looking for how to get started with the AAC. So I just feel like I've talked a million miles a minute, but we got it all in. We got it done. If you have any questions about this, please email me at laura at teachmetotalk.com. I'm so happy to answer your questions and help point you in the right direction. Uh, and again, know that you can get further resources at teachmetotalk.com too. Thanks so much for joining me for the show. I'm glad my voice made it. Uh, have a wonderful day. is Ryan here and I have a question for you what do you do when you win like are you a fist pumper a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.